Now, as I, uh, as I was preparing this past week, I came across an article in the Financial Times um, of London, and it caught my eye. And the title of it was this, Why Not Have Christmas Every Other Year? And I was like, I wonder what she's got to say. And so the article begins by her describing her love for Christmas, for all things Christmas, and, and uh, all that she, she gives it. She, she begins, I still adore Christmas. And she talks about how uh, her, her childhoods were, were just filled with the joy of Christmas. And even though her life was hard at different points, Christmas always came around and boosted her, her morale. It turned her, her and her siblings into heroes, and it changed the way she saw the world. Those are her words. Then the article, about halfway through, it takes, takes a different tone. And she writes this. She says, I will never forget what Christmas did for me then. I am still in a way trying to repay every year a tiny bit. Uh, I'm still in a way, uh, let me start over this. She said, I will never forget what Christmas did for me then. I'm still in my way trying to repay its debt and make others concede its magnificent allure. So she wants to bring people into this love for Christmas. And yet every year a tiny bit of me suspects that Christmas is secretly trying to kill me. It wants my heart and my liver and kidneys too. I give it my all and still it isn't satisfied. Like a withholding parent, these days Christmas seems to ask a great deal of satisfaction for the little it gives. Now whether or not you identify with this author's feelings about Christmas, we can all identify with the disappointment she feels. When in her words, Christmas seems to ask a great deal of satisfaction for the little it gives. For all the joy that Christmas and our culture promises, all the happiness it promises, it holds out to us, it brings with it a whole lot of disappointment. Now, some children are going to wake up this Wednesday morning not receiving anything they were hoping to receive. Others will wake up without a loved one in their home. Others will feel the pain of being unable to participate in all that's going on due to their declining health. So when they were once a participant in all that was going on, now they're just kind of a bystander. It's painful. The torment, the pain that this season brings is is real. Now, the author of this article, she describes how for her, sometimes a year goes by and that Christmas feeling never comes. And she says the same is true even for children. She says she's seen children of nine brave and wistful that Christmas doesn't make them feel the way it did when they were six. And when they were six, they were sad it didn't make them feel the way they felt when they were four. The article concludes this way. She says this, the trouble, the trouble is Christmas draws together so many bewildering uncertainties. What emotional state is my family in? How loved am I? What is there to believe in? What do I want? What are my needs? And how can I best bear the loss of the departed? Add anxieties about food and money all in one day. And yes, you better watch out. And she asked this, might we have it every other year? Christmas confronts us with many bewildering uncertainties. So perhaps, as the author suggests, maybe we should just have it every other year. But our problem is that these uncertainties and disappointments aren't confined to Christmas. They are all around us. Disappointment and unmet expectations, they they fill our lives like water fills the ocean. It's everywhere. Many of you will end up on social media at some point this week, and you see the smile on everybody's faces and all all the presents that people are given and all the joy... And you'll see beautiful people in their beautiful homes. And you might wonder, man, why can't I have that? Or where has the time gone, you might wonder. Disappointment, regret, failure, loss. They lurk around every corner of our lives. And so what do we do? I think we often try to numb the pain. 
So some turn to drugs and alcohol. Others turn to busyness, just to distract them from, from the disappointment, from the pain around them. We are searching, we are looking for something to cling to for hope, just to help us to get through. We hope in things like better health, in healing, in a better marriage, in a restored relationship. We hope in the stuff that we can accumulate, all the toys that we might have, or all the money that we might get. It's in the places we can go. We fill our lives with all that we can so we can ignore the pain of disappointment and regret, the pain of missed opportunities and mistakes, the pain of unmet expectations and failure. Now, I don't want to be a negative Nelly on this Sunday, but this is, this is the life that we live. And so I can best serve you by being honest about our lives. If we're, if we're honest as we look in the mirror, it can seem that life is not all that we want it to be. There are going to be moments where it feels like, yes, this is, this is what I want it to be, but the reality is, most days, it's not like that. That's not reality. Those, those moments are fleeting. They pass quickly, just like Christmas morning. But I want to share with you this morning is that what Christmas points us to is far better than anything that you can find under the tree. Amen. Better than anything that can be found in this world. Better than any experience. Better than any high. It's better than any accomplishment or season. It's not about a Christmas feeling. It's not about reliving years gone by. It's about the coming of a baby and about why this baby came and what he came to do. This morning we're going to look at just two verses together from a letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians in the middle of the first century. And they're going to help us understand the what and the why of Christmas. And my hope is that as we look at these verses together, for those of us who are struggling, who are disappointed, who are weary, who are depressed and looking for answers, that we would find them as we answer these questions. And for those of us who might be satisfied and joyful right now, you love your life right now. You're grateful for a lot of things. Pray that you would find more rest for your soul as we meditate on significance of the coming of this baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we're going to walk through these two verses phrase by phrase, asking two questions as we go. What happened at Christmas? And why did it happen? Before we do that, let me pray. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear what you have to say to us through your word. Even though in, in the world's eyes what we, are, what we are gathered here doing, listening to me talk, is folly, is foolishness, because you reveal yourself to us in your word, we have something to hear and I have something to say. And Lord, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of your truth? Would you open our ears to hear the wonder of these words? Lord, would you conform our hearts uh, to all that you have for us this morning? Give me strength in your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to have the, uh, the scripture presented behind me on the screen. Galatians chapter 4. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you're more than welcome to. Galatians in the New Testament, after the Gospels, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to Acts, Romans. You're going to find two letters, First and Second Corinthians, and then you're going to come to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Thanks be to God for His Word. The first, we're, gonna, we're just going to walk through this passage, asking these two questions. What happened at Christmas, and why did it happen? We're going to do that by going phrase by phrase through this verse. So look at, with me at the first phrase of Galatians 4.4. 4. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now this is the beginning of our answer. What happened? What happened at Christmas? God sent forth His Son. He did this at a time predetermined before the ages began. Time was like this cup being filled to the brim. And now it's spilling over into creation. It's the dawning of a new age. The moment God has determined to intervene on the earth. Now it's no accident that this was the time. 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. We don't know necessarily why it was the time. But it was the time that God chose. And for those of us who believe that this is God's word, that's enough. God didn't see what was happening on earth and suddenly decide... Oh no, I better do something now. What are we going to do? No, no. In His wisdom, God chose this moment in human history to send His Son. So important is this new age that later generations, about 500 years after Jesus came, they chose to divide all of time right here. That's why we have A.D. and B.C. It marks this moment when the fullness of time had come. And here at the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son. And notice that God sent His Son. We did not come to Him, but He came to us. God sent forth His Son to those who had already turned away in their sin and their rebellion. They were going their own way, but God, out of His infinite compassion, when the fullness of time had come, He sent forth His Son. And think for a moment more about that word, sent. It brings with it authority and power and commissioning. Now, boys and girls, if you have brothers and sisters, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it means when someone is sent. Because when you go to one of your siblings and you tell them, hey, let's come inside, most of the time, sadly, they're going to say, maybe not any, anything. Or they're going to say no. And, but you're going to be like, what? I mean, I just told you to come inside. But you don't have any authority or any commissioning. You weren't sent. But if you come outside and say, Hey, Dad told me to tell you to come inside. It's a little different. Now you have this authority behind your words, this, this commissioning. The same is true of Jesus. He comes in the name of the Lord, sent by God, carrying with Him the power and the authority of God. Unlike us, He never does anything without this power and authority. Everything He does is out of submission to His Father. I just have to share this because it happened this morning. So I thought, I mean, I had this illustration. I thought it worked really well for God sent forth his son. So my son comes in, one of my sons comes in this morning and says, uh, Dad, when should we eat breakfast? And I said, now is great. Go tell the kids that I, I told you to tell them it's time for breakfast. And then I hear them talking later. And he's saying to his sister, why didn't you come when I told you that Dad told me to tell you to come? She's like, I didn't want to. So... So our, our human authority and commissioning doesn't work as well as God's does. But Jesus, He never fails in the authority that He has as He comes. God sent forth His Son. Now think about for a second who God sends forth. God sends forth His Son. His Son. This tells us something about the Son that we can so easily miss at Christmas time. And is really the whole point of Paul in saying that God sent Him forth. For God to send forth His Son, to send Him forth, means that the Son already was. He already existed. He didn't just suddenly appear at Bethlehem. But He was sent forth from heaven. The word theologians use for this is is He was pre-existent. He existed before He appeared on earth. 
Jesus' disciple John talked about Jesus as, as the Word of God. Jesus is the Word, the Word made flesh. Listen to how he begins his gospel account in John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. Those words should sound familiar. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So in, in the beginning, the Son was. Jesus the Son is that preexistent One. The One who was with God because He was God before all time began. And when the fullness of time had come, when He could have sent anyone to carry out His mission... God sent forth His Son. He could have sent an angel, right? Or maybe He could have sent a superhero. Like Captain America could have worked, right? Captain America could have come and saved humanity. He could have gotten the job done, no? No. God sent forth His Son. We sang it this way earlier. True God of true God. Light from light eternal. He's the pre-existent one. The Son isn't just one who comes on God's authority. He is the true God. He is the everlasting light. And He came, intervening in our world, coming forth for our good. In the Incarnation, God sends His Son from heaven to earth. And just for a moment, pretend that you know nothing of the events of Christmas. You don't know about the baby or the manger or anything like that. Alright, just pretend that. You don't know any of those things. All you know is this phrase we just looked at. God sent forth His Son. What could you possibly imagine could come next after that? This is what Paul writes. Born of woman. It's the next phrase. Born of woman. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, the preexistent One, One who came from heaven. Born of woman. God Himself comes to earth to complete a great rescue, and He comes born of woman. While the first phrase, God sent forth His Son, points to Christ's deity, His very godness, this phrase points to His humanity. He was born of woman. He is the incarnate one. Now think back with me to the passage we heard uh, Brandon and Annie read for us earlier. Talked about the shepherds on a hill, keeping watch over their flocks. Now imagine for a second being one of those guys. You've grown up in this little town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was a little town. Right now, in our day and age, a lot of people are talking about like local pride. So you have Maryland pride or, I don't know, whatever, whatever other locale you come from. There's probably pride associated with your locale. And so your Bethlehem pride, as the shepherd, is found in two things. One, a famous king was born there. You know how you're driving down the highway and you see so-and-so was born here. So this famous king was born here. And that's about all you've got if you're Bethlehem pride. It, but it's the city of David. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Pretty cool and all, except for the fact that like David was, has been dead for about a thousand years. And it's like in the last thousand years, you don't have anything better. Nobody else has come along and we could say, hey, so-and-so was born here. No, all we got is the city of David. But all in all, David's pretty good, so we're going to go with it. And the other claims, that's claim number one for the Bethlehem pride, folks, these shepherds. The other claim to fame is this little prophecy that a man named Micah made about 700 years ago. Now again, that's a really long time, 700 years. And think, about, think back to like if, if our, uh, we can't say America pride or Maryland pride because it predates us 700 years. But let's say if you're from England and you say, yeah, my local pride is, is rooted in what happened in 1320. It's like, well, I mean, maybe something else has happened in the last 700 years. Yeah, that's all they got. But this prophecy was a big deal. And so little boys and girls in Bethlehem, they would go to bed with their parents telling them, 
about what this guy Micah said 700 years ago. And this is what he said. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's pretty cool. So for 700 years, people in Bethlehem are growing up. These kids are growing up. Wondering who that ruler is going to be that's going to come from Bethlehem. Really, from Bethlehem, their little hometown. I was trying to think of like, what would be comparable to Bethlehem for, for those of us in kind of Montgomery, Frederick County? And I thought of Dickerson, Maryland. It's like, Dickerson is in Montgomery County. Believe it or not. It's an afterthought. But it's there. Right between the Potomac and Sugarloaf Mountain. And it's in Montgomery County. Go figure. And that's kind of like what Bethlehem is like. So you're a shepherd from Dickerson, Maryland. Kind of, that's, that's, that's who you are. And this is all you got to go on. Somebody was born there a thousand years ago. And somebody said somebody great was going to come from there 700 years ago. Still hasn't happened yet. But that's, that's your life. This is what makes up who you are. Now, at this point, this prophecy from 700 years ago seems more like a fairy tale than like anything that's actually going to happen. But it's cool. Nonetheless, this is your Bethlehem. This is your Bethlehem pride as a shepherd. David in this prophecy, that's all you got. And then one night, as you're tending to your sheep, that angel appears. And remember what the angel said? He said, fear not. Because they're terrified at first. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now this sounds awesome. Good news, overwhelming joy for all people. We're talking about like beauty pageant promises here. I mean, it's like world peace. It's going to happen. Happiness for everyone. The angel continues. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. You're like, all right, I know, I know where this is going. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You're thinking, this is crazy. A Savior coming from Bethlehem. It's kind of weird that he said born, like this angel said born, but he's an angel, and so you've got to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it means something else to him. Like when he says born, he really means he's about to take over the world. Like that's what born must mean to the angel. This ruler is coming, just like Micah said 700 years ago. This is awesome. Now all this is going through your mind, but then the angel keeps talking. He doesn't stop there. He says, and this will be a sign for you. And you're like, all right, good, 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 a sign. This is going to tell me what to look for. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And your heart, which moments before was exploding with joy, suddenly sinks. This cannot be. This angel is saying that the promised ruler who carries with him the hope of a nation is right now lying in a manger, lying in a feeding trough. Now it's not only disappointing, it's ridiculous. One author, he says it this way, and thanks to uh, Miss Stephanie Wethji for sending this to me this week. He says this, It would be hard to find a more disappointing sign. Everything is wrong. It's a baby. Nothing is more helpless than a newborn. You have to do everything, but everything for a baby. They can't walk. They can't talk. They can't crawl. They can't even lift up their heads. More than that, the sign is a baby lying in an animal's feeding trough. There's no expensive crib for this little boy. He's born of a poor mother, excluded from society, unimpressive in every way. Nothing, but nothing about this sign suggests that he is the King, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Talk about Christmas disappointment. His Son comes as a baby? A helpless baby? Seriously? Now, I find it funny sometimes when you hear people say that, like, 
I think Christianity was just made up in the first century by the disciples. I mean, maybe they just got together in a room and they were just hashing this out. As if anyone could make this up. I mean, imagine them in a room together and someone suggests, hey, how about our Savior, He's God, and He comes as a baby, like He comes as a fetus and is born. Like, that'll totally take everyone by surprise. It'll be great. If I'm in that room, I'm giving that dude the death stare. Like you cannot, and I'm waiting for him to say, "Ha, no, I'm just joking," and he doesn't. And so I'm just staring him down. And it's like you cannot be serious. Like that's insane. No one would ever take us seriously. No one would follow us, right? No one. It's crazy. But that was exactly God's design. He sent forth His Son, born of woman. We couldn't make this stuff up, but God did. So we go with it. He was fully God and fully man. This is the one who was sent forth by God, born of woman, born under the law is what the next phrase said. He was fully God and fully man. God sent forth his son. This is the what, what happened at Christmas. We sing this. I think we're going to sing it after. Christ by highest, heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. So you hear the pre-existing one, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, speaking of the fullness of time, offspring of the virgin's womb. I love this line, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. He became what he was not by being born of woman. But not only that, as I said, Paul writes next, he was born under the law. Meaning that not only did Jesus come as man, he came as a Jewish man. He came as one who was subject to the law to obey the law, to follow the Ten Commandments, to love the Lord as God with all his heart, with all his soul and mind and strength. Even though he was the law giver, he came as a law abider. Even though he was the judge upholding the law, executing the law, he came to be judged under the law. And in being born under the law, he was found to be completely innocent in every way. He faced the temptations of this world and never gave in. He obeyed God's law in every way, not violating God's law once. He succeeded where no one else ever could, ever did, ever will. He met every demand of the law. And towards the end of his earthly ministry, when the various religious leaders, they were trying to, to catch Jesus and accuse him of wrongdoing, they had a really hard time, didn't they? Because there was nothing there. So they had to make stuff up. So when they, when they bring him before Pilate, we read about this in Luke 23, they bring him before Herod and then Pilate. And both Herod and Pilate, they, they grill him. They're trying to find something. You've brought me this man and we're, we're, you want us to punish him. And, and Pilate tells them, I've examined him. He's not guilty of anything you've accused him of. He says that Herod did the same thing. And he didn't find anything either. He was born under the law, but found without sin. This Jesus was found to be completely righteous in his obedience to the law. But yet we know where the story goes from there. He came and he died on the cross. He died the death of those who break the law. So he came and lived a life under the law and died a death for those who break the law. If this is what happened to him, then what hope is there for you and me? Because we do wrong constantly. Paul writes this in, in Romans 3, that, that no one is righteous, not even one. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They go their own way. 
We are bitter towards others. We're selfish in our thoughts and actions. We say things we don't want to say. We do things we shouldn't do. Now, this was the fate of the righteous one. What hope then is there for me, for you? But thanks be to God, because He has come. Because the Son of God, born of woman, born under the law, He came, we can go free. And this is the why of Christmas. This is why this baby came. Paul is going to explain it to us by providing two reasons why why God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. And here's the first reason. Next phrase, to redeem those who were under the law. Not only is Jesus our Emmanuel, He is God with us, He is God for us. God's demand for us, for all of humanity, is is perfect obedience. But none of us can do it. We all fall short. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are without hope on our own, but Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. Now, to redeem means to, to buy something back. It involves paying a price in order to get something back. It would often be used in terms of slavery. And so you would redeem a slave and set them free. And Christ has redeemed us, those who were under the law, those who were under God's judgment because of their sin. Just a few verses before in Galatians 3, Paul, Paul writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As the one who came to live under the law, he took the very curse of the law on our behalf. Only Jesus, the one who is both God and man, could do this. He could both stand in our place and pay our price. But he has done it. As our representative, he's kept the precepts of the law. He's obeyed the law in every way. And as our substitute, he has borne the penalty of the law. One pastor said it this way. He said, if God must save then the Savior must be God. And if man must bear the punishment, then the Savior must be man. And Jesus is the incarnate deity, the God-man, who came to redeem those who were under the law. Only Jesus, sent by God, born of woman, can redeem us. The only hope in this life is not in doing right by God. It's not in saying the right things or doing the right things. It's not found in you know, if only I could be better, or if only I prayed better, or if only I knew more Scripture. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. It's in coming to know the sent one. We're all under the law. We're all under sin. We are under curse. And there's no way out from under this bondage but by the grace of God. By turning to Him, we can receive freedom. We can receive forgiveness. We can receive life. The Christian life is lived based on the conviction that Christ has purchased our freedom through His death on the cross, through the blood that He has shed. He was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who are under the law. He paid this price by dying for us. Jesus has entered our prison house, one commentator writes, our prison house where we were held in bondage so that He might set us free. That's what He did in being born of woman, being born under the law. He entered our prison house. So we sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. I'll praise God for His coming. Paul says it elsewhere. He says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake He made Him, as God made Jesus, to be sin." who knew no sin. 
God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. But, but setting us free is not the end of the why. That's just the first why Paul gives. Yes, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but look what Paul says next in verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're not just set free to now figure it out on our own, to go our own way. We are set free to become children of God. We're not set free to be tested and really earn our keep, you know, earn our spot, prove our mettle. Yeah, I deserve this. No, that's not why we're set free. We're, we're set free so that we can be His children. The Son came under the law to set free those who were under the law. God sent His Son so that we might become sons. And Paul is being particularly gender specific here. Notice that it doesn't say that we might become sons and daughters, but sons. And the reason he, he says it this way is that we might receive, the word in Greek, is, it, it means sonship. It means all that is in Jesus, we might get. And Jesus was, was the Son of God, the only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear adoption. Perhaps you think of adopting a pet. Or maybe a child being adopted. Either way, the significance is the same. There's, there's this legal change that takes place. A new status is given to the adopted one. So when a child is adopted, right away, legally, they become the son or daughter of their parents. Their last name changes. As an adopted child, that child it receives a new status. Did that child do anything to earn that status? No. No, it was the choice of the parents to bring that child into their family. Does that child need to do anything to keep that status? No. No, once that child is legally declared a child of those parents, they can't be, that child can't be unadopted. Think about how incredible this is for those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. You become a child of God receiving this status change. No longer are you defined by what you do or where you've been or what color your skin is or who your favorite team is or where you're from. Those things don't define you ultimately. You are defined by who you are in Jesus Christ as a child of God. But not only that, in adoption, you receive all the benefits and blessings that come from this new status. You inherit all the riches that God has promised to give to His children. I was thinking about this earlier in, in Ephesians 1. Paul begins with this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So when you're in Christ, you're seen as holy and blameless before God. All, all of our miserable failings were seen as holy and righteous if you are in Jesus Christ. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption. He's redeemed us. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. For the fullness of time to unite all things in Him 
things in heaven and things on earth. And in Him we've maintained an inheritance. Because we've been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. We receive the blessing of light and life with God. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Can't be taken away. Nothing can separate us from this inheritance when you are in Christ, when you are an adopted child of God. You receive the gift of His love, the promise of His Spirit, the peace that comes in having unlimited access to Him, being able to cast your cares on Him. We can only pray this morning as adopted children of God because He sends to us the Spirit of the Son by which we cry, Abba, Father. By placing your trust in Jesus, you're no longer an enemy under the curse of the law, but His dear child under the love of God. You're no longer an outcast. You're brought in as part of His family. No longer should God be approached in fear, but He has given us the Spirit of His Son by which we call Him Father. And brothers and sisters, hold on to Him and trust in Him. The God who made you is the God who loves you as His child through Jesus. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. Now think back to that article I mentioned at the beginning of our time. Might we have Christmas every other year? There are times in December where I kind of feel that way. It might be nice. Let's skip this year. Let's sit this one out. I sympathize with what she deals with. Because Christmas, in our culture, it seems to promise a joy that it cannot give. A happiness that will go away. Because when December 25th rolls around, December 26th always comes right after it. It also brings with it the pain of years gone by. There's excitement in marking off another year that's gone by, but there's also sadness as we, as we just creep towards death, and death takes everything away. It brings with it reminders of relationships lost, of loved ones gone. So maybe she's right. Maybe every other year would be better. But the question of how often we celebrate Christmas is meaningless in light of the hope that we are pointed to in the coming of this baby. Because we know that the baby lying in a manger, it's not the end of the story. The story of Christmas doesn't end with, with the shepherds gathered around the manger or the wise men coming and bringing gifts. It doesn't end there. We know about the life that he lived. He lived the life that we could not live, walking righteously in every way. And he did that on our behalf as our representative. We know about the death that he died on Calvary, where He was pierced for our transgressions. He paid the price for our sins. But we also know the story doesn't end there. Because He rose from the grave. He defeated the power of death and sin and evil. And we know there's still more. Because after He arose, He ascended on high. And He gave us a guarantee of our hope by giving us His Spirit. And so we wait amidst the disappointment that Christmas can bring, that this life holds. We wait in peace and joy. Because the light who has come into the world will come again. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the, the darkness of this world, the darkness that we face, the darkness of our failures and disappointments, it cannot overcome this light. This baby who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who ascended on high, is coming again. And when he comes, night will be no more. 
There will be no need for lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light. And I love this in Revelation 21. It talks about He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. You see, everything that, that death can take away from us, Jesus came to give us what death cannot touch. What a hope we have. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain or disappointment for the former things will pass away. He will make all things new. And he tells us this. These things, Jesus, Jesus tells John as he's writing Revelation, he tells John, write this down. These things are trustworthy and true. Bank on it. So when we see this baby, when we see this baby, helpless, infant, lying in a feeding trough, let us see our mighty Savior. Our brother, our friend, who though he was in the form of God, he took on flesh, conquered the sting of death, that we might be free. So it's to him we look, it's in him we hope. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for the mercy you have shown us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to take away our sins. Thank you that when the fullness of time had come, you came forth, bridging the gap between heaven and earth. You were born of woman, born under the law so that you might redeem those of us who are under the law. For this we thank you. We praise your great and awesome name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.